Welcome to The Science of Fiction, the show that takes the science behind the movies a little too seriously. Hopefully we've got lots of new people this season, and we just hope that many of you have come back for more. Welcome back. Uh, so I'm your host, Andrew Holding, and I am joined today by Will Thompson. Hello, how's everyone? Uh, so we, we spent our summer touring the world, or we like to say touring the world, more very small fraction of it. And as usual, for the start of the season, we felt it would be uh, really good just to look back at what we've done over summer. So we're going to take you on a virtual tour of all the places we visited, and reflect on the books we've read, the movies we've seen, and we'll take a characteristic look at the science behind the fiction. Before we do, I'll go into our first track though, we'll just remind you that you can of course send in anything you feel like to studio at camfm.co.uk, or by using that little box on the online player if you to use it. Oh, hey, you could, you could try it. You could try tweeting us on hash science of fiction uh, as a hashtag. Uh, we'll s- keep searching and see if anything comes up there. Well, this, so this is the first of our tale of two squared cities. Oh, no. 
That was, of course, London's Calling by The Clash. Which, um... Uh, London is the closest place either of us have been to this summer, right? Yeah, well, I suspect quite a lot of people just went down the train recently. Maybe some people are even there right now. Hello, Londoners. Hello. It's a big place. It's a big place. Some ridiculous amount of the UK's population lives there, which is probably why, as a place, it uh, has quite so much fiction about it. Yeah, so there's, we're kind of spoiled for choice as to what, where we start talking about London, but um, one of my favourite um, pieces of fiction about London or set in London is uh, Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, which is both a book and was turned into, well, rather, it was a TV show written by Neil Gaiman, which he later turned into a book. And the, an- the anecdote was while they were filming, whenever a scene he really liked got cut or a plot twist he liked got cut, he would say, don't worry, I'll put it in the book. And so the book turns out to be way, way longer and I think better than the TV show. Well, isn't that just what book readers say all the time? Yeah, naturally. Yeah. But it's, it's an interesting story. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, Will, but it sort of starts out with a person looking around London they come across a homeless uh, individual called Dor um, yeah I think so I'm pushing your memory here Dor is, is the protagonist yeah um, and and yeah, the, and, sorry no Dor is the protagonist's friend from, <laughs> from, from the kind of the, 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 the secret underside of London where magic is a thing but it, it's also quite a poignant story because it, it lo- looks at how the homeless are effectively invisible so this underside magic London he discussed also is a a world where people sort of disappear into and when he tries to come back out of it basically no one appreciates he exists right and it's partly because partly it's because of a device where people are literally invisible if they're from this underworld but there's a kind of um, grey area where people can be seen but they're just ignored which is yeah as you say kind of a nice uh, uh, reference to how people choose to ignore the homeless or people they just don't want to see um, and of course the other thing is it really taps into the whole idea of the underground which I think it's probably the coolest rail network in terms of marketing achievement I don't know any other rail network you get quite so many forms of clothing to support and like I remember one bit is where they have is it Knightsbridge they have to cross right and there's a literal bridge with a literal knight as, as with all the underground stations yeah and then they go to Blackfriars and there's a bunch of friars of a certain ethnic origin it's, it's a really interesting town I, I, I don't think we can spoil the ending Probably not. I, th- I think this is going to be a running theme that a lot of the a lot of the things we're talking about today are they have cl- clever enough twists that it's worth us not talking about them if you haven't se- have you, if you haven't read them, um, which is you know annoying. But you, but I, I recommend that it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a pretty good read. Uh, and the ho- and the whole people disappearing into an unknown side of London uh, reminds me a little bit of uh, Charles Stross's Laundry series, which uh, deals with this. Um, this this secret um, gov- government agency, which is a branch of the civil service, which deals with supernatural incursions and so on, and their entrance is they go through a cupboard in the underground, which looks like a um, you know a broom cupboard or something, and then actually it turns out to be an entrance into a secret quad full of porter cabins because the actual building is under repair, as is all of London all the time. That's just reminding me of the number of times we go on the underground and you see a hallway just going off in a random direction. It's like, should I take it? Will it get me there quicker or will I just end up in some labyrinth of hallways? And yeah. normally it comes out with something that seems impossible to connect to where it started from. Yeah, there's um, a acquaintance of mine, Andrew Godwin, um, has a interesting map of what the inside of the what the inside of the uh, tunnels of the underground look like. So he's taken all the data he can find about where the train tunnels go and drawn a um, 2D map but with elevation data as well to show where the two where various lines actually cross each other uh, which direction goes in which direction as it were which side goes in which direction and so on it's actually like the shape is way more complicated than you think it is well that's because uh, amazingly that someone 
took the idea, wasn't it electrical circuits to then simplify the tube map? So the tube map looks nothing like the actual underground map, but it, I think he got his inspiration from the way circuit boards have these very simplistic routes around the board to just try and stop everything crossing over each other. Uh, yeah, I guess that's the challenge of trying to make the graph um, of places planar, right? To try and avoid it, to do yep. avoid lines crossing where you can. And it's sort of a circular way recently, uh, an artist in residence uh, just. Uh, on to doing some artwork in London. They um, took the London Underground map and then converted it into a circuit diagram for a radio. Oh, wow. And so, and then arranged the components appropriately so that there were nodes at where all the... Well, like, so you get those on boards where you put the components and you get these little circles oh. with a hole through, so it does that. Also, like, White City, where the BBC is, that he put the volume control. So, But you've also got this big round pot that sort of looks very similar to that front of television centre. So wh- whereabouts in London did you spend your time? I did spend it down... Oh, I was staying in Shepherd's Bush, just up the road from White City, and I spent my time doing some s- interesting work at BBC, trying to sort of work out how the science factual department there works. And does it work? It, it, well, they seem to be very good at producing TV. I shouldn't be too rude about them on air, but... Um, no, it, it does work. I mean, what was quite interesting is a lot of people get very frustrated with uh, science shows on TV, so, you know... The BBC, obviously, there's the Horizon, and I did some work with them. And people go, oh, it's been dumbed down, it's this, it's the other. But they have this huge competition the whole time that it is BBC too, and they want to make it entertainment, but at the same time keep it right. And the, it's those editorial cuts on the way, sometimes work and sometimes don't, but everyone on the team was pretty much a scientist. They were educated on science, they knew what they wanted to talk about. You know, they all had the ability, it was more of a trouble was just trying to get that in a good form and sometimes they're incredibly successful sometimes they you know make mistakes but i think that happens with everyone absolutely absolutely so but by a complete coincidence where uh, we, we both managed to accidentally read the same novel over the summer uh, embassy town by china mierville see i was under the impression that you'd already read this from and um, we discussed it on the radio show had we I, 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 having I, read it i now know it wasn't because there's a china mayville book where he talks about the person who is it mate says a lie, but there's no word in our language about it. Uh, there's in um, in an- another one of his novels, uh, 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 Perdido Street Station. There's a character who commits a crime, but um, his th- th- there's no word, there's no translation for his crime. Yeah. So and so I guess from that you could assume, oh, you know, I've talked about this 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 China Mirror book which plays with language, but all of his books play with language. Yeah, and then I picked up Embassy Town, and it, it talks about language on the back and I go oh this is one Will's read I should probably read this because we discussed it on the show and I found a book that you hadn't read by China Mavir which is almost incredible <laughs> well there's, there's probably more that I haven't than, more th- than I have the, the, the number is changing over time so but so in, the, in, in this he keeps writing them he does keep writing them so, so in this novel there's kind of two strands only one of which is ever taken anywhere um on the one hand, there's th- th- this character there's this concept of the the Immer which is kind of the hyperspace of um of the uh, universe, uh, which has you know echoes of previous universes, and there's people with particular uh, aptitude for basically not getting sick can uh, yeah you fly get seasick very much get seasick in it. And I found that really cool though because he develops his inner his hyperspace far more than like most other sci-fi ever develop their hyperspace. Uh, you know, it is a space that's always been there, and universes are born and died, and it is it, it gives you like the forever. I, I think Emma means something in German, which we could probably look up uh, yeah. during an interlude. But he also uses other words to describe it, which are talking about the fact it's an existence where it, the always, I think it is, and then the our universe is for sometimes, or something like that, and he uses language to play around for the nature. Also, there's obviously other people have been there before. There's lighthouses and artefacts left around the Emma. 
and he doesn't use it very much but he sort of drops it in in the way he does where he starts off assume, almost assuming you know it and then slowly gives you little bits of information which makes it a real interesting thing to learn about but at the same time he still managed to develop it more than say subspace and star trek which i think it probably does whatever they wanted to do that week right and the, the difference is that um in in, in, in most shows uh, the concept of hyperspace just does whatever they need it to do whereas in whereas in this novel i really in retrospect don't see the point of about a third of the book being there i, I found it was kind of interesting but it wasn't well, that crucial to, to many aspects of the plot not just to some of the development it was yes and ultimate ultimately it turned out to be more useful than it, than it seemed to be i think that was more about character development right right but but, but in the course of doing so he did all this all this really intricate world building Yes, um, and I guess th- th- I mean there's th- there's some there's some tr- truth to this, right? That th- 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 the current thinking is that before the Big Bang, perhaps there were other things. Yeah, well, this is something actually I only came across recently because I was very much of the thought that before the Big Bang there wasn't time, so it wasn't so much we didn't discuss it. It was just the fact that without time, our understanding of the universe doesn't really make sense because we always discuss things as changing, as evolving. Um, and then I was in a discussion with an astrophysicist who clearly should know more about it than I do and um, it's actually Andrew Ponson who's been on the show before and he made the statement well actually today they're now more thinking that what happened at the Big Bang was everything changed in the way that we now understand it so there was stuff before then whether any information got through that of course is a different question and if no information got through it then the universe might as well have begun at the Big Bang because we don't know anything about it. And, and if um, things changed so dramatically that we can't um, that we don't have the scientific tool um philosophical tools to deal with it then again it's kind of the question is academic at some point but at the same time it's not a case of just wanting to blockade the discussion and uh someone who's done quite a lot on this or certainly tried to push for it is uh, is roger penrose uh famous more for penrose tiles so the, yeah these are these um arrangements of um tiles which can um i think they they, they, they can tessellate forever but not repeat um, and there's, there's an anecdote about someone tiling the floor of a maths institute with Penrose tiles, and the, and the people laying the tiles said, yeah, this is never going to work. And someone said, well, you say that, but someone here has proved it will work. But of course, reality is, doesn't always necessarily match the proofs that people construct. But I think what's quite cool is once something which was totally thought you're being ridiculous is now opening up as something that can be discussed. How seriously it's still taking, I don't know. I think it's slowly gaining a bit more. There may be more to this. There may also be wrong, but they're willing to have discussion uh but going back to embassy town uh we said it was about language not about hyperspace right so in 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 embassy town there are these um uh, alien creatures who um for reasons of physiology speak um with uh, two pitches at once they so their their language is basically um is is in stereo and it's it's notated with um kind of like a fraction with half the words on top of the fraction and half the words below which looks really really ugly on kindle so i recommend reading it in a a paper book oh that's good to know because i i broke my kindle so i had to buy a paper version and you you, you made the right choice i mean it's readable but it it looks really terrible um and obviously this is up this is relevant to the plot but um not my kindle breaking Oh no! The the um, the the, the, the um, stereo language is more than just a a gimmick. Although that's something I've never seen before. But um, I I came across a story recently about um, sign language, which of course actually does have um, in many many sign languages do include two components. There's the signs that you make with your hands and arms, and where they are with relation to your body. But also people mouth the words in say English. Um, to allow people to combine lip reading um, what the words would, would sound like and co- combine that with, with the gestures to um, interpret what you're saying. So moving, you know, going back through history a bit, um, 
for many, many years, um, education in America was segregated um, based on race. Um, and so this, of course, included education for the deaf. Um, and so standard American sign language is taught uh, with hand gestures and with mouthing, mouthing the words. But over time, a dialect uh, de developed in the school schools for uh, black Americans, which did not include mouthing the words and had different sets of hand si signals. So come the recombining of uh, education into what, into what was the word, uh, desegregation, um, then students found themselves in classrooms where people were speaking radically different dialects, not only in terms of the words looking different, but also the way they spoke was completely different. One half of the class would move their lips and the other half wouldn't. And this was a, this. I, it never even occurred to me this would be a problem. And, and so that is a case where seg segregation has gone even further to divide a population. Uh, we've uh, two things. Uh, I looked up Immer, and it does mean always. Um, okay. <laughs> Google's great. The other thing is we've had someone email in, but I haven't given their name, so I'm sorry we can't read your name out. But they said the Rivers of London trilogy by Ben Aronovich uh, deals with a magical London underworld. Uh, but it says they aren't quite as good as Neverwhere, but they are pretty close. So might be worth checking out. Yeah, maybe we should um, give that a read sometime. Thank you, anonymous uh, listener. So let's take a trip across the Atlantic.
So that was um, Montreal by Kaki King, who is not from Montreal, uh, nor are the band of Montreal, which I was very disappointed to discover. Um, and my uh, Quebec French isn't good enough to figure out what any of the uh, bands I listen to who actually are from Montreal are singing about. So, Which is why we also had to be slightly careful with uh, censorship, because we don't know what the Ofcom rules are on Quebec French swearing. Yeah, as far as I can tell, the, the rules on language don't say which language, which I suppose makes sense, you know. Language is a language wherever you are. So so if if you are Quebec French and you're listening to the show, we have taken efforts not to offend you. Um, yeah, I, 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 I hope you um, appreciate the, uh, the lengths we go to. Uh, so before we um, discuss um, well, Quebec, um, we the our anonymous um, r- listener, writer, um, correspondent identified herself as Rachel Kennelly, who was on this show a few, few seasons ago. Uh, and she mentioned that um, the third book in that series has a race of people who evolved to live on the underground, a bit like a mosquito subspecies, which is only found in the London underground and nowhere else in the UK. Well, she just put the caveat that she may have just made it up, but she can't remember. I mean, it's, it sounds remotely plausible, um, right? It's a really interesting concept. I mean, I haven't come across it, but the idea of a mosquito species that only lives in a certain ecological niche is totally conceivable. And the underground, as we were just saying, is really large and has some very specific ecology to it. Like, it will never see the sun. Right, yeah, and, and, and it, has, it has a different cross-section of people in it, namely everyone, than most other parts of London do, I guess. Yeah, and of course, unlike other underground areas, it has trains and people dropping food and people. Though actually, it's... it's um we, we say that it's you know, unla- unlike other underground areas, but actually in uh, in Montreal there's a whole so-called underground city because of course in in Montreal it gets extremely cold in the winter, and so there's whole um, there's, a, there's a reasonably extensive subway system around downtown uh, for, with trains, but there's also um, passageways for pedestrians between a whole bunch of you know, big 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 blocks and towers around town and over time the um, this you know, these underground passageways have been have been you know, built up and extended and there, there are shops and food courts and so on uh, all with the intention of people being able to do everything they would need to do downtown without actually going above ground can they actually get any good food down there though yeah there was some, there was some surprisingly good food courts that's good for, for, for context listeners i was in montreal for a month this summer um so this is one of my two square cities. Well, one of my two cities. Um, but yeah, one of, one of the things that really struck me about um, Montreal as a place, is of, of course, you know, th- th- as anyone who's... Been there? Been there or heard about it. No, or, or as I did it, did it in Trickle or Stage 2, I believe. Right. It, it, its existence as a place which speaks something a lot like French, um, as to whether it is or not is French or not, I think people, people might disagree on that. Um, but um, unlike some of the... Some regions of... Um, Quebec, where French is the is the only language spoken, there is quite a big uh, anglophone community in Montreal, um, which you know stands to reason it's, it's a it's a it's a big and um, successful North American city. So of, co- of course there would be, but of course, following on from that, there are also areas of town where um, only the anglophones go out, and there are areas of towns where only only um, French speakers go out. And then where the two communities meet, um, people do switch language mid sentence all the time. Which is quite disorienting. This reminds me, I was in uh, Switzerland for a very short amount of time once, and I went up to the bar. It was something ridiculous, like I ordered in French, got replied to in German, replied in German, then he switched back to English. Having having realised from your terrible French and German... What was weird is then, I then replied in English and he switched back to French. (laughs) Naturally. So, um, of my languages, French is my strongest, which is certainly not true to any French person who's heard me. Maybe true in Switzerland? Who knows? Maybe I'm very good at asking for a pint of beer in French. It's um, useful term to have, but um, for, for, for a risk of sounding like his uh, 
free PR department, uh, China Mirville has another novel uh, called The City in the City, which also looks terrible on Kindle because the language they speak there has lots of accented letters which aren't in most normal fonts. So again, they have a tiny image whenever there's an R acute uh, in in the writing. So again, you've got you know perfectly well formatted text, and then suddenly an image of an R which looks terrible, so don't read it there. Um, but in The City in the City, it has these two overlapping cities which occupy the same physical space uh, or the same area. But uh, some streets are exclusively in one city, some streets are exclusively in the other, and um, some are in both, and they're kind of grey areas. And the inhabitants of one city can only st- have to stay in their city, and they can't communicate with anyone who's in the other logical city. And they have to immigrate and emigrate through one doorway in the centre of town, um, which... I mean, the whole the whole thing is some kind of you know existential question of what does it mean to to be to be in the same city as someone. I mean, again, back to what we were saying earlier about um, making it very easy to avo- ignore people who aren't in your sphere of the world, despite being right next to you. And an example of ludicrous bureaucracy. Right, right. Um, which is which? Yes, no one is a stranger to. Um, Meanwhile, sort of further out in the universe, um, Firefly is one of these shows which ends up with with this hybrid language um, where they they speak in English, but they curse in um, Mandarin. I think it's Mandarin, is it Cantonese? Anyway, they they, they curse in Chinese, or very badly spoken Chinese. Um, Which is explained away by the writers of the show as being a case of, well, in the the future, the the two dominant languages will be English and Mandarin. And so it stands to reason that some some cross-pollination between the the two languages would happen, which is happening in um, Chinese, though I think it's happening less so in English in real life. Um, And it isn't a new technique. Um, I've just started reading uh, A Clockwork Orange, yeah, I know, I'm behind the times, which, of course, very famously has um, this slang called nadsat, which is from, I think, the Russian for teen, where all the um, slang words are corruptions of slang words, or of actual words in Russian. And again, it's explained as, you know, he, these will be the, the two dominant languages of the future. This is, of course, written during the Cold War. So um, it, it would make sense that over time, the two would start to um, cross-pollinate and blend together. So, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe these aren't as far-fetched. Uh, that. They seem a little bit less far-fetched now than they did a few months ago, to me at least. But yeah. So what's? Oh, uh, sorry. I've just we just had an email in uh, talking about the London Underground Mosquito. We we now have um, uh, the Wikipedia page. It's got to be true. Yeah, ex- ex- extensive extensive research has confirmed. It has it has got references as well. Yes, it um, apparently it yeah it does exist. And what's interesting about it is that the population from the underground do not represent the local population at the tube station so it's a cross underground phenomenon not a local population going down into the tube i, I imagine that, that that is partly due to the mosquitoes being inadvertently transported around the around the network i mean they probably haven't mastered the art of you know, waiting for the right stop and then getting off the train uh, probably not though they obviously are interbreeding in strange complex things like this so there's quite a lot of reading here for me to do um and we only have an hour show so maybe we'll come back to this again but yes hooray so there we go nice distraction for a moment and back to montreal yeah well while kind of more frivolously um while i was there uh, there was a well it was reported i think here as well that there was a um the federation of quebec's maple syrup producers reported a large quantity of maple syrup missing last month during a routine inspection uh finding empty barrels at a site of the province's global strategic reserve so this is a global strategic reserve of maple syrup. 
which sounds ridiculous, but apparently it's due to the fact that uh, maple production varies dramatically based on how cold the winters are. So in order to stabilize the prices from year to year, they have to have just a giant reserve of thousands and thousands of litres of maple syrup. I nearly bought some maple syrup when I was in Vancouver. Um, but, but you didn't because you decided it wouldn't be delicious enough? It was because it was, in an off- it was at the airport and they going to charge me ten times a reasonable price for it. Uh, yeah, pro- uh, probably a good move. They had a more reasonable price for um, maple-flavoured honey, but as everyone knows, you mustn't import honey to the UK. Uh, because of um, contaminating your bees? Or? I have no idea. I, probably, actually, in fact, it can be really toxic. You, uh, it's honey. one of honey's one of the few things you can't give to small kids until they're about a year old. Wow, because no it, it can contain botulinum, and yet it's it's known for being antiseptic as well. Uh, that's just because sugar kills stuff. Oh, uh, I see. I so, think so. Nothing special about honey apart from it being basically sugar. Well, jam m- bacteria can't and mold don't really grow in jam. It's only when you get the water on top that it starts uh. growing in the sort of dilute sugar, and it goes yay, lots of food. Sugar that's diluted enough for it not, not to kill me, as I said in it. But what really interested me about the maple syrup story was, um, apart from the fact that this reserve exists, which sounds like a delicious place to be, was that um, there was talk of being able to trace um, the maple syrup like by, by finding by finding it for sale elsewhere. How like, Would you do a chemical analysis on, w- this, on the syrup? I would guess you would go for the volatiles in the syrup, and there'll be different amounts depending where it came from. Uh, I'm not so good on my knowledge of analysis of maple syrup, but another example would be cannabis. Uh, there's different forms of the THC in the cannabis and by working out the ratio of those forms you can tell which source it was and and, for, and ba- ba- based on having sampled them before or, or you, knowing you, what, what the kind of the, the, the wildlife around there you, where it's you, growing is you need a database of what okay. you need a pre-sampling so they would know this because they would know well, they would presumably have some unstolen barrels which they can sample at their strategic maple yep. syrup reserve or they could just get someone with a really good sense of taste well that sounds like a good job to me To change the air, rewrite the start. Electric car, so good so far. Electric car on verdant green. Invent a turn, invent a dream. Rewrite the start Electric 
Okay, that was uh, Electric Car by There Might Be Giants. They Might Be Giants. Sorry, I don't know why I just changed that. They Might Be Giants have been playing music for a very long time. I think they did that album live at the Babbage Lecture Theatre. Oh, wow. I went, when they oh, really this, this is from Here Comes Science. Yeah. When they decided to capitalise on the fact that all of their fans are now grown up and have children. And so made it must started making out educational albums for children. Yep. Seems like a good idea to me. It's brilliant. If you go searching for them on Spotify or whatever your music streaming system of choices, you get an awful lot of Disney. Uh, that they've done? Yeah. Covers or original? I, I think for Disney shows. Oh, I see. Okay. For, for, for their kind of their lower budget TV, TV series and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, electric cars. The uh, reason for that was because uh, I went to Aberdeen for the British Science Festival. And for people who don't know, Aberdeen is, well, the oil fields being nearby make a big effect on their economy so you aren't playing that because the streets are literally overrun with electric cars no they quite like their their fuel how about how about segways are they used didn't see any segways i I mean to be honest i don't know how much the average aberdeen local cares about cars and electric electric cars but certainly their economy is massively distorted by this they also interestingly have two towers at the university which do look like they belong to a disney movie as in your original towers huh on the way into part of the student campus uh if you google for aberdeen university towers you'll probably find them i i guess the other thing you find if you google for aberdeen at the moment is there was that story about a man in aberdeen who got his head stuck in a bin he uh, wasn't stuck well sadly whilst i was there oh okay so you, you didn't push him no so what, what, what kind of things happened at the science festival well, well fe- science and festing well a lot of science and festing um can you? Fe- I don't know. Festing isn't good. Uh, we did manage to pop along to Brewdog. Do you know about Brewdog? Oh, this, the, these are the um, the, uh, the the brewery that has uh, rivalries with other breweries to brew the strongest beer. Yes. Yeah, so they released, I believe it was technically a nuclear penguin, and uh, then someone in Germany tried to make a stronger beer, and we're talking double figure percentages. Yeah, these these are like above thirty percent. Yeah. Um, um, not, is that really still beer? We'll we'll, we'll come back to that. Um, but they then released a thing called Sink the Bismarck in a tasteful reply. Yeah, which, which, which I have tasted and it's disgusting. You don't like it? I quite like Tactical Nuclear Penguin. Uh, maybe I should try this, the, the, the lesser one. Yeah, but you don't want to drink too much of it. It's, it's pretty strong. But yeah, there's different ways of pushing the alcohol up. And sometimes you just add it, sometimes you will freeze it and you then take the... Because the alcohol doesn't freeze, you get this sort of more alcoholic liquid. You, there's loads of ways of fortifying your uh, beer. And they argue it isn't... I argue if it isn't brewed, it isn't really beer. Which seems like a reasonable standard to... You, you have to define it somehow. Yeah, though I am asking if anyone wants to support my uh, research into involving a new form of bacteria, or sorry, yeast, which can uh, survive much, much higher concentrations of alcohol so we can brew this stuff, please do. Uh, any, any yeast experts listening in, you know? Yeah, I, I think we can get yeast which survives up to 40% alcohol. It will then be able to brew this stuff, and it will be properly done. And it will be profitable. Very. Um, you heard it here first. Yes, nearly as profitable as the oil industry. Uh, what was quite interesting is when I was looking up at... It just came across me. I picked the track electric car, but I was someone emailed me a link to a guy who is trying to sort of refurbish one of the original electric cars. Obviously not the first, but when the 1970s fuel crisis hit... Uh, they built a thing called the Enfield 8000, which uh, was actually quite quite a good little car. I mean, I, this is this is the first I've heard of it. It's, it. It looks like it's a tiny little thing. Yeah, it's smaller than the original Mini, not the BMW monstrosity. Um, that's just saying it's large, personal opinions aside. Um, but 
it they also they didn't make it look beautiful it got this wonderful airplane sort of sweeping front windscreen but then they got bored halfway through like again most Porsches huh we, we can just lay into every other car company there is uh, the problem was uh, in 1975 they cost about two grand which doesn't sound too bad until you well actually no it's more three grand it doesn't sound too bad until you realise that that's the same price for a three litre Ford Capri at the time which was a nice sports car Right, so 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 in order to you'd have you'd have to be able to afford a, a really nice car and have this car which is not that great in well, comparison. I mean, it was okay for the time. I mean, these aren't going to shatter anyone's like, oh wow, it's amazing! It did forty miles an hour. It could do thirty miles an hour in twelve seconds. You know, we're not talking about so this, this, hugely fast. These, these, this is not this is not going to win any races, but it's not pathetic, is it? No, and you've also got to take the time in the seventies. There were people still driving Morris Miners and things like that, which were not that speedy too. People who were driving them who weren't enthusiasts as well. Yes. Uh, uh, people, I know people who still drive them who are enthusiasts and they still don't break 30, some of them. But I, I was reading a thing um, the other day about um, the very early days of cars and apparently uh, back in the the beginning of last century there were you know, about, about a quarter of the cars, cars on the road were electric and a quarter of the cars on the road were steam-powered. This is obviously back before cars were mass market. This is when there were four cars. One was steam-powered, one was electric. <laughs> and the other two were, 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 one was, were, were, were petrol-powered. And one was petrol, one was diesel. Off it went from there. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I think we are talking a long, long time ago. Uh, but it's, it's interesting. Um, you've put an interesting anecdote on the show notes. The drunken crude oil trader. Yeah, this was actually a few years ago, but for some reason it was in the news again recently. Um, someone who, you know, he, he was by trade a, um, a crude oil trader, and one night he uh, drank a lot of, well, perhaps he was drinking uh, Brewdog's finest um, excessive beer. And, and, you know, over time it sort of kept clicking by and ended up buying about 69% of the world's uh, crude oil. But this actually had a massive effect on the economy, didn't it? It caused the oil prices to soar massively. Right, and, and in a way which, if you look at the, the the shape of the curves, it resembles what happens when there are major geopolitical changes. It was quite eye-opening that, you know, one person really does have this power, as if it was as if it was a game, to um, move all this money around and make, have these serious impacts on the world. So could you then just sell that? Um, I think, I, I think I guess his, his employer had to sell it. Uh, uh, he, highly inflated price? He called in sick, <laughs> and then was almost immediately fired once someone really figured out what he'd done. It, it kind of reminds me, I, I don't want to say the company, because I'm not sure, but one car company wanted to take over another car company. And there's this thing where what you do in trading is you often will sell, buy shares at a future price. So you say, I will buy 50 of those shares at 10 quid, and then in... In six months. And in six months, if they've gone up in price, that's a good deal. If they've gone down in price, that's a bad deal. Um, but what they did was they did this with lots of people and managed to do it so they had bought more shares than actually existed. Uh, or bought, bought the option to buy more shares than existed. Yeah. Uh, but, 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 but they bought the options from enough different people who didn't actually own them themselves, but were planning to buy them and were themselves betting that they would go down in price. Yes. So what happened was they had also bought some themselves anyway and the the share price just then went through the roof and then this had massive implications because it made it very difficult for any company to sort of get involved in a bartering system it was a, it was a takeover but it was it was very subtly done and the arguments were well shouldn't you tell people before you do this and in the country it happened it was completely within the law perhaps the law has been changed since then uh, I, I i think people just said don't be so stupid when selling futures Seems, seems reasonable. If you're going to do it. So uh, I think it's time to move on to our next track. And back to a different continent.
So that was um, so a song something about cities by Buke and Gase. Um, Naked Cities by Buke and Gase, uh, who are... It's not the names of the members of the band. They are It's the names of the instruments they play. Um, both members are called Aaron, I think. Um, and Aaron, the lady who sings, plays a buke, which is a modified baritone ukulele. Apparently she plays that rather than any other instrument because... Uh, she had trouble with carpal tunnel syndrome, so had to make an instrument that was better suited to what didn't hurt her hands. And the other other member of the band, there are only two, and it sounds like more, but the other member of the band uh, plays a gase, which is half guitar and half bass. And they, they also have percussion attached to their feet, you know, as you do. Okay. And so how do you make a half guitar, half bass? Um, I think it's mostly just you know, the body of a guitar with the strings changed to be half bass strings and the neck reinforced and so on. So, so it's not like a double bass it's not, it's not double headed no both instruments just have oh I see no it's it's, it's a bass guitar yeah it's kind of yeah, it's a halfway but it's a, a custom made guitar guitar shaped instrument with a particular tuning it would have been cool if it was a double bass cross with a guitar it would have been maybe this you, you could have one neck going vertically and one neck going horizontally <laughs> right ne- next time I have a workshop and a spare double bass to cut up and get right on that well you were at the make affair was anyone doing it uh so yeah, this, this, um, no, there were there were fewer instruments than I thought. But to, to back up slightly, so um, I actually saw Buchan Gaze in Montreal, but um, they're actually from New York, uh, which is the fourth of the two square cities. Um, and there's a whole there's a very big sort of DIY culture apparently in in Brooklyn. Who knew? Um, and while I was there, the, there was the Maker Fair, uh, where it's a celebration of people making things, uh, which I went along to and. There were, there were, I, there, I was expecting a lot of musical instruments, and there were fewer than I expected. I was expecting some hacked Furbies, and there were some hacked Furbies, and there were a lot of 3D printers. Three, so, for people who don't know, a 3D printer is a printer that can make you nice 3D models, but sadly, generally just plastic ones. Right, so it, it, it works by... Uh, it, it melts plastic and has a little, kind of like an inkjet nozzle, where it sketches out each layer of plastic on a surface. So you, obviously you, you can't make things floating in midair, but you can make all, ki- all kinds of solid shapes out of this. And you program what shape it will be, and then it makes a thing, and then great, you have a thing. Um, and the, the people were making some pretty frivolous things there. There, was, there, were, there were lots of uh, busts of Yoda, obviously, because this, this is a nerd event. Um, and there was one place where they were, they were printing uh, batarangs, the little shurikens that Batman uses to throw bat-shaped things at people. Though uh, one of the people at that stand said he was actually kind of worried because they'd had about 20 uh, of these batarangs. And then some kids had come and basically taken them all. And now there were some kids running around this event with quite sharp um, bat-throwing stars. Oh. Uh, but you know, kids will be kids. Kids will be kids. You know what? What happens if one horribly maims itself? Right. But the, and, the, and but Andy, you found something in the news where where three uh, D printers and weapons were a little bit more involved. So yeah, this was in the news. I, I think it was in last week. Uh, a group of people set up. I think it was a Kickstarter project or something similar to Kickstarter. Anyway, to rent out uh, one of these fabricators and to try and make the first world's first completely fabricated gun. Oh, I see. So print print all the parts of, including yeah. in, presumably not including the bullets. No. So you, you buy a bu- get a bullet, and this uh, this is this is a very very much a cultural thing. I don't think this is something anyone would do in the UK, mainly because it's totally illegal. Uh, but in the US, you know, there is a gun culture. The idea of being able to defend yourself, and the idea of being able to everyone have a right to a gun they can make themselves, is something that certain people sort of like the idea of. And people have done this before, but then using off the shelf parts to sort of finish the job. 
And there's no way this gun would work for more than one shot. It would just destroy itself. But, well, yeah, presumably the barrel would just melt. Yeah, but it, it, theoretically, they believe they can make a gun that will do one shot, which, to be honest, it might be enough. It, if, if if one shot was everything between you and someone else, then? Vampires normally work alone. Silver bullet, you're done. Ah. And you, or is so, really a wooden bullet for the heart? I don't know. Choose your own material. Choose, choose your vampire dispatching material yourself, but... The problem was, they got, were very public about this, and the company which had hired the machine then took the machine back off them, saying they do not want uh, anything to be done illegally with their machines. There's this big debate, and I don't know American law well enough, but as far as I can work out from what I've seen, it's legal to make a gun in the US, to, as long as you don't make certain types of guns, like sawn-off shotguns are banned, uh, fully automatic weapons are banned, importing the parts from a dodgy uh, drug dealer in a foreign country, that's banned. Um, but actually going and building a legal, perfectly normal, non-concealable weapon, uh, I think even if it's concealable is fine as long as it's a pistol, this is okay. And the reality was, the company just re- realised that it was not good PR, I think. Right. I mean, um, I, I feel like th- the 3D printer companies must be very worried about uh, their public image at the moment, because I, th- I think they're really on the cusp of being quite a mainstream thing. Uh, there are some keyboard manufacturers who are already saying okay well we could try and sell you replacement knobs and dials and things for our keyboards but it costs us so much to send them to you why don't you just print them out yourself or pay someone to print them for you presumably of course, of course. i mean the interesting thing is though is this idea of taking the like the ma- fabricator off them uh, to me it's kind of no different than someone selling you a lathe i'm sure you can make a gun on a metal lathe uh, but, or someone or someone leasing you a lathe yeah well in this case i mean this that's the reason it became so controversial someone owned it uh someone else owned it if you own your own one that would be fine right uh, 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 you, people well people do seize them the, the the tools used to make illegal things yeah i mean if you were but making guns in the uk um, you would have it all seized but in this case if if the the act of making the object isn't illegal and the object itself the the, the tool is not illegal why why but i guess it, the owner taking something back their own that's typically fine so yeah and you can just walk into any shop and buy a gun in the us anyway so it's not making the world a more dangerous place mm, i don't think that's strictly accurate, well but well, it, it, it depends re- relatively speaking yeah it, it depends you can buy guns in walmart um, I, I didn't look Maybe. You didn't look. It'd be quite hard to import. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there was um, there was also a, um, a, a story I saw while I was there, which, which I missed. Well, I missed while I was there, but apparently, apparently it was going on at the time, uh, where uh, Nikola Tesla had a lab out on Long Island, uh, which uh, he ended up having to sell uh, to some technology company decades ago to pay for his, well, his when he was alive to pay for his mounting debts elsewhere. And there was a the company that owned it were putting in this his old lab up for sale, which is kind of decrepit but still exists. And there was a, a group trying to make a museum out of it, and another group who wanted to buy it and tear it down and turn it into a massive shopping mall. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with the people who wanted to keep it. Yeah, and, and fortunately uh, there was a big, big fundraising campaign, and it was it has been it has been bought for the re- requisite million and a half dollars, and there's some money left over to make a museum. But, it, but and Tesla, Tesla is this character that people love. I mean, he's totally bonkers in certain things that he came up with, but he's just been latched onto by and from crackpots to hardcore scientists. They're just everyone finds something they love about the guy. I think because he was just so quirky. I mean, I, I think everything I know I knew about Tesla before thinking about this came from either Red Alert or The Prestige and I'm pretty sure that Red Alert is obviously fiction and I don't think he invented a teleporter so no 
Well, maybe he. Some people claim he invented free energy for everyone, but sadly, wireless energy, all these, all these wonderful things. But maybe I should go back to this museum when it when it when it comes about. Okay, well, I think we haven't got long left. Yeah, I think we're, I think we're running out of time. So we we teased you all, listeners, with uh, Andy's post-apocalyptic plan. Yes. So um, to survive the zombie apocalypse, uh, I decided that you have to learn to ride a motorbike. I see. See, they they do things well. They're high miles per gallon. Okay. And everyone in movies drives one. Okay, I, I see that you've, you've, you've got two very important points. And the other thing is I discovered that the training for riding a motorbike requires weaving around several slow-moving cones. Oh, fun. Well, non-moving cones. I see. They're zombies. It's have all zombie uh, training. So have, have you managed to convince the training school to put zombie um, puppets around the uh, course? No, but, but the cones do sometimes creep up on you and you hit them. <laughs> they come out of nowhere. You, yep. Yeah, you, you, you were doing everything right, but they moved. Yep. Absolutely. I, I believe you. Millions would. So I think that's about all we have time for today. Um, so thank th- thank you, dear listeners. Um, I'm going to be annoying and be, do a plug. The, the Science of Fiction House Band featuring me and uh, Trevor Wood and Steve Frank, who've both been on the show before, uh, Garuda, are playing a show at the Corner House on Thursday. If you'd like to come along, we'd be very happy to see you. I'll put a link on the Science of Fiction show notes. And we'll be back at the same time next week. See you then. <laughs>